We're in Genesis 6. We've been working our way up to this point. And we see quite a contrast from Genesis 6 to Genesis 1 and a very grim picture of our world back then and, and now. So let's read, then we will pray, and let's unpack. Genesis 6, we're reading from 1 to 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attracted, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of man and they brought children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I made them. But the Lord found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Oh, sorry, but, but Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. I'm sure the Lord found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as the rain hits the ground, we are reminded of how your word does not come back to you, boy. Just like the rain when you send it goes into the ground and produces crops, Lord, and comes and bears fruit, so your word will go forth and bear, bear fruit. Lord, let us see how your word is bearing fruit among us in our sanctification as it draws our heart away from our deprived hearts to the holiness of Christ, the holiness of our Saviour. We'll be reminded that we have his holiness dwelling in us. And this passage today, as we look at the depravity of man, is merely a reminder of what's, what we once were and what people who are outside of Christ are. Let us take encouragement that as you found favour, as Noah found favour in your eyes, so we find favour because of Christ's work and his work alone. Humble us, Lord, for we need humility as we talk about the spiritual world and the complexities that we do not understand. Give us wisdom beyond our finite minds to understand your infinite mind of how you can be both sovereign and foreknowing, yet grieve what you have created. Many things to learn, Father, and we pray that your spirit be with us. Glorify your name and bind us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 1 says in 29, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant you will see that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. 
And to every beast of the field and to every bird of the heavens and to everything, everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And the Lord God, sorry, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Just after God created everything, just after God created man, he turned to man, his creation, the image bearer of himself, and said, here is everything, all of the earth, have dominion over it. God, in giving to man everything, every green plant, every animal of the field, gave, left nothing outside of man's grasp. He gave him everything he needed and nothing that he did. But man moved from this beautiful, glorious, gracious work of God away from everything he needed to the very thing he didn't need, which was autonomy. And in verse 5 of this chapter that we turn to, God looks at the earth again and it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continued. A great contrast between chapter 1, after the creation of man in the garden, possessing everything he needed and having nothing that he didn't, now to a place of autonomy away from God and the wickedness of man is great. He left the life of being in the presence of God. He left the life of having everything that God gave him. And he wandered away from Eden with a depraved heart. And over the last couple of weeks from Genesis 4 and Genesis 5, we've seen the evilness increase tenfold, particularly in Genesis 4. In Genesis 5, we saw the promise that God's plan of having a people for himself will remain and that he will always have a remnant for himself. He will always reserve people who will worship him. Yet the majority of the world at this stage is distant from God and Genesis 1 is a distant past. In this, in this passage in Genesis 6, 1 to 8, we come face to face with two very real realities. One is the world is more supernatural than we Aussies want to give it credit for. The world is more supernatural than we Aussies want to give it credit for. And second, God is very much in control, very much knows what's going to happen, yet he grieves sin and unholiness and unrighteousness. They are not opposing, they are friends. We're going to unpack this. There's a lot of confusing passages. I'm going to do my best to explain it and you can talk to me after if it doesn't make sense. Starting in verse 1. When men began to multiply on the earth of the land, on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And they took as their wives only at any they choose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, but his flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Bible makes it clear that as man multiplies, depravity increases. 
Proverbs 29, 16 says, when the wicked are multiplied, transgression increases. Romans 5 reminds us that, we're, that we increase in sin when the law was given. We see very clearly that as man multiplies, as the image of Adam is brought out, that depraved heart, we're seeing sinfulness increase across the world. In this passage, we're pretty much going from Genesis 4, where we saw about the depravity of Cain and the flow on of murder in his line, to many years later, some 1,600 years, people believe, and seeing this increasing depravity where spiritual world is affecting the physical world, where the spiritual world affects the physical world. As Christians, we must understand that we believe in the spiritual world. God is spirit. In his graciousness, God the Son came down in human form, which gives us some ability to comprehend the image of God that is the exact imprint of God's nature. So we must understand that we believe in spiritual things. And I think in our culture of Australia, we struggle to grasp spirituality. And I think that Satan has lied to us. And when we come here, we have this incredibly odd passage about the sons of God and the daughters of men. Now, the daughters of men were attractive, it says, and they, sons of God, lusted after them or desired them. The phrase here is not a good desire. We know in Scripture that beauty is a concealed beauty, an inward beauty, not a sensual beauty. And here we are seeing a sensual beauty in what the men, the sons of God, are lusting after. They, they, this is an unholy desire. It states that they marry them, which is quite interesting. So we've got two questions. Who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of men? Why is there a distinction here? Well, at first I look at this passage and I think this is quite easy. In the last two chapters, we've looked at two very different genealogies. We looked at the genealogy of Cain. The genealogy of Cain was about a murderer where murder increases throughout his culture, a whole lineage to the point of Lamech, where Lamech boasts about murdering for a slap on the face. Well, are these not the daughters of men? Are these the sinful, in, uh, are, uh, are the daughters of men not from the line of pain? That could be one of the scenarios. Because the very next chapter, we see God's preservation of Seth, the line of Seth, which comes back from Adam, and this is a righteous line. We see the seventh in that line, Enoch, walks with God and is taken up. He does not die. We see Noah is in that line. So are these the sons of God? Now, my conservative nature wants to say this is what it is. This is what the scriptures are talking about. We've got those who follow God and they're referred to the sons of God. We've got those who don't follow God and they're referred to as the daughters of men or the sons and daughters of men. But God is spirit, and there is a spiritual world and a supernatural world, and we must look throughout the scripture to understand, well, how else do we see the term sons of God? Firstly, we don't notice in Genesis chapter 5, it doesn't say this is the line of the sons of God. So we're not referring to them as the sons of God there. Also, in this passage, in this very verse, it says, when man began to multiply on the face of the earth, uh, and, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Here we don't see 
that the sons of the men that were multiplying on the earth are the sons of God. They seem to be a distinct people or a distinct creation. They're separate from man, those who descended from Adam. But how do we understand who the sons of God are? Well, we can turn throughout the rest of Scripture. I'm going to turn to one book, the book of Job, and I'm going to give us three passages, the third one which gives us a very weighty argument of who the sons of God are. Job 1.6, the context here is we've got God before. God is uh, overall, of course, we've got Job, a righteous man of God who is before God and yet has his righteousness in the faith of God. And then Satan says, he's only righteous because you've given him everything but me curse him. So it says here in 1.6, now, there was a day when the sons of God come to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. In chapter 2, the same thing happens. Satan wants to curse uh, Job even more, and it says again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Now, this last one makes it very clear that the sons of God were around before anything else. On that day, uh, oh, sorry, it's um, Job 38, it says, on that, uh, on what were it, on what, sorry, on what were the earth's bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sung together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? It seems as we work through scripture, and these are only a few, we could spend some time going through the references to the sons of God, but the sons of God are spiritual beings. They are angels. They dwell with God. They don't dwell on earth. Now, we know that Satan himself was an angel and he was cast down from heaven onto earth along with some of the angels. So what we have here is a very weird story of spiritual beings being married to women of men. And everyone's going, I'm leaving this church. This is a cult. Let me explain before we uh, before we run out. We must be... We must, as Christians, get to a place where we can be okay with the spiritual world and the cosmic powers that are at play because what we see in the scriptures is very much spirituality. We have the Holy Spirit in us, so we know that there's spiritual things working out. We believe in good spiritual things, but we struggle to believe in the dark spiritual things as well. So what we need to come to the conclusion of is if what we have here is fallen angels having relationships with men, how is that possible? Because Matthew 22, 30 says that angels don't marry. Straight up. Matthew 22, sorry, not Matthew 22, 10. Matthew 22, 30 reminds us that angels do not marry and probably don't reproduce. But how is this possible? I think it's very clear that as we look through the rest of Scripture, demon possession is very much a real thing. We believe that Satan took the form of a serpent in the garden and tempted Eve. I believe that is a real story in the Scriptures. It's not a metaphor for anything. We also believe that Jesus drove out many demons when he was on earth. So demons are an active force among the world. What I think we see here in the Scriptures 
is that the depravity of man has increased so greatly, the depravity of man has increased so greatly that Satan and his demon influence have possessed men, and it's the start of some sort of pagan occult Satanism. This is the beginning part of some occultic Satan worship movement. You've got to understand the context of the day would be that fathers would have to encourage women to marry, or fathers would have to give permission for women to marry anyone. And I think what we see here is this tribal uh, trading off of your children, your daughters of man, to pagan worship, satanic worship. The demon's influence has come on man and influenced man and possessed man and now have caused the depravity of man to seem even greater. Evil can't dwell where holiness is. That's why Satan was removed from heaven. Even evil can't dwell where there is holiness. And what we see here is the depravity of man has sunk so deeply, so far from God, that now the spiritual world can possess Man, we're seeing idolatry take place. Man turned from God to seek their own autonomy, but really they are not autonomous. They are dependent on Satan, their father. They worship the evil one. And now, in a way that we haven't seen, probably again, they have possessed men in order to lust after women and to have un holy relationships with them, which would be attached to a satanic worship. Heavy, right? Heavy to think of the depravity of man. But Jesus is also told, uh, said to have gone to preach to these fallen angels in prison in the time of the flood. In 1 Peter 3.19 it says, Christ preached upon his death to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. What we have really clearly stated in 1 Peter and also in Jude is that there were fallen angels, and they were in the time of Noah. And these fallen angels are punished and bound in gloomy darkness, it tells us. So what I think what we see in the scriptures is that these fallen angels who have possessed men, these sons of God who have fallen from God's glory, who are possessing men to be involved in pagan, occultic, sexual, sexual relations are the ones who have been bound in Satan Christ goes and preached to in his death. Yes, we believe in a supernatural world. Gordon uh, Wynnum rebukes middle-class, comfortable Christianity by saying, if the modern reader finds this story incredible, that reflects a materialism that tends to doubt the existence of spirits, good or ill. But those who believe that the Creator could unite himself to human nature and the virgin's womb will not find this story beyond belief. We believe that God, through his saving plan, gave a virgin a child who would be his son, who would be holy, who would be without sin, who would die and raise to life. And when we hear of demon possession, we're like, whoa, it's too much for me. But what we're hearing is not just about demon possession, but the depravity of men. 
Because as I said, evil can't dwell where holiness is. Evil can't dwell where God is. God sends forth evil. The reason Adam and Eve are no longer in the garden at this point is because they've been cast out of his presence. They can't be with him for they have a depraved heart. So we see the evilness of man as they continue to spiral. If we look at the line of pain that went from murderer to a guy who brags about murdering someone who slapped him on the face, plummet, chanting and blaspheming God. And we take another 16 years of depravity, that's 1,600 years of depravity. Where do we end up? Satanic worship. A dark heart that is completely turned from God to be dependent upon something else. Who's given up on normal relationships and seeking power in the spiritual darkness of the world. Because what we see in verse 4 is that these sons of God, or these men that are possessed by the sons of God, become quite powerful, which isn't beyond what we understand. We believe that in the scriptures, which we'll get to in a moment. Because God first looks at the depravity of this world, looks at this spiritual darkness that is taking place in the depraved part of man and punishes it once again or puts a limit on it. In verse 3, we see... The Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. He's, he is flesh. His days shall be 120. What we know is for the last week, we saw ages up to 169, uh, 969 years. Men living for close to a millennium. Now, God says, because of this depravity, because of this evilness, because the world is so far out of control, I will put a limit on their lifespan. My spirit will not endure with them forever, their life will be 120 years. Now, of course, the very next story, we know that was 500 years old and lives quite a significant time. But after that, we see the ages drop significantly. Aaron and Moses in Exodus lived to 120, or just over. And then later, we know that Moses writes in Psalm 90 that your years are 70 or by reason of strength, 80. We are to live forever. The punishment of Genesis 3, or the punishment of the warning of Genesis 2 that says we will surely die if we turn from God and eat of the fruit, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then we will die, and that is certain, and now sped up 120 years. So we get to verse 4, and we see the sons of men and children of, uh, sons of God and daughters of men have four children, and they're called the Nephilim. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of, who were of old, the men of renown. So the Nephilim are the children of the sons of God and the daughters of men. The sons of God have possessed men in occultic worship that have relations with the daughters of men. And now we see these men who are described as mighty, mighty and men of renown. And there's many stories about the Nephilim being giants, with superpowers, magic, uh, all these great mythological stories. 
Now, how do we handle this as conservative Australian Christians? How do we wrap our minds around giants? Well, the word Nephilim means fallen ones. They're not giants, they're fallen ones. They are depraved, they are sinful, they are from satanic worship. That's that's where they have come from. And what we know about demons is that they can produce great power. Let's think about the New Testament. We find these stories easier to believe. Legion. Jesus comes into a town. There's a man with legion in him, many demons. And it says that he had the power to break chains and no one could bind him. So he lived in the graves in the cemetery. We believe that legion had the power to do crazy things. We know that Jesus foretells that many will come in his name. They will even do miraculous signs and wonders that may lead lead, lead the elect astray. We believe from the New Testament that demonic influence can create a power that is unheard of, a supernatural power. And that's what I think when we look at this passage we're seeing. Man's depravity, man's brokenness, man's evilness away from God has led them to seek power in the influence of the demonic world. They're a part of an occult, satanic worship. They are following different idols. They are worshipping these things and they are inviting them into their life and it's seen as great power. These Nephilim are not to be praised. They're not mighty men as David's mighty men were. They're not men of renown that should be celebrated and exalted. They are fallen ones. They are broken, evil, separated from God, cut off. And the result is the flood. The result of these Nephilim, the result of these demonic influence is the flood. Judgment upon man. Now, let's think about our world today. Now, of course, this was a supernatural time period, and I don't believe in demon possession much like this. I think when Christ died on the cross, he achieved a conquering of Satan. He bruised his head, as we've seen in Genesis 3.15. But Jesus bruised his head. He defeated Satan in some form. That does not mean that Satan has no power today, but he is bound. He has limited power. He's bound, he's on a leash. So this sort of demonic influence where men have great power and renown is limited to deception and loose demon possession. So how do we view our culture today? Are we seeing this world, this depraved world of demonized sexual relationships in our Western society? Well, listen to Ken Hughes say this. Today, though I would not go as far to say the Western, westernized culture is demon, demonized, I would say that the signs are growing ominous. Certainly, a demonized civilization, a demonization of sexual relations has taken place. How can you conclude otherwise when given times on the major networks, you can view men on top of women and women on top of men and same-sex individuals in sexual intercourse? Is this really pretend? How can you think otherwise when daytime talk shows will plumb any subject with the most appalling methods? How can you think otherwise when the holy name of God is blasphemed while the holy while the holy things like the virgin birth and the sexuality of, sexuality of Jesus are the subject of obscene jokes? 
How can you suppose otherwise when so many of the heroes of our culture are so-called men of renown are violent? It's a great bleak picture of our society today. Although we don't believe that our whole society is possessed by demons like they were in Genesis 6, we can see the influence of our depravity at play as we joke about holy things as we take the good gifts of God, the things that God created like marriage and children and use them for things that are evil. may feel like an extreme quote. It may feel like this quote is not true, but as we look around this world, or as we consider what God sees in this moment, what God sees in this moment, he sees everything. That great psalm of uh, Proverb of Proverb 5, that God sees the intentions of your heart. Just think for a moment what God is viewing. All around the world, in every city, in every dungeon, in every dark place, in every tribe, what does God see? Is it good or is it much like Genesis 6? We don't need demon possession to have the pride of life. and We don't need demon possession to be evil. Our very nature has turned from God and separated us from his holiness and the righteousness we once had. Our sin is our sin today. And many people like to throw around words like, I have free will, or phrases like, I have free will. Yet do you really have free will when you can't stop sinning? You can't stop sinning for a moment. I don't think we have free will. The truth is that as God looks at this world today, as he looked at the world back then, although this was demon possession and heavily occultic, satanic, the depravity of man is real and he, he, he states over it in verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man. It was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only, was only evil continually. Think of those words, every, only, continuum. Every, only, continuum. Do you believe that? I know many Christians who say, oh, I thought the world, I thought people were naturally good. Well, you're not reading the same Bible as me. If that's a Christian view, a Christian believes that they thought people were naturally good, they have not read Genesis or pretty much any book of the Bible. Every only continually, every intention only able continually. And many people will say, well, that's just the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament is different. He's more loving. Well, God says, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. And in the New Testament, Romans 3 says a very similar thing, just in different words, quoting from Psalm 14, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks to God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Not one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and it continues. 
That's the same God of the Old Testament speaking from the New Testament. I believe God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he still looks at the world and sees that every intention is only evil continually. How does he respond? In verse 6, 7, the Lord regretted that he had made, the, made man on the earth and he grieved him to his heart. He grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made him. We get to some pretty heavy theology that if not careful, we'll end up in heresy. And we're trying to understand the infinite mind and emotions of God with our finite mind and emotions. So many people will say here that this contradicts God's sovereignty and God's foreknowledge. We believe that God is all-knowing. He knew the end from the beginning. That's what Isaiah tells us. God knew the end from the beginning. He knows all things. It was not a mistake that Genesis 3 happened, but part of his divine purpose and plan that he would have a redeemed people for himself. So how do we understand a God who regrets, or in the KJV, a God who repents, which is a pretty poor translation, but God regrets and is sorry for making Well, let me quote John Piper. He gives this image, and he says, if I smack my son for blatant disobedience, he runs and he runs away from home because I smacked him, I may feel some remorse over the smacking. Not in the sense that I disapprove of what I did, but in the sense that I feel some sorrow that the smacking was necessary and part of a wise way of dealing with my son in this situation. And great sorrow that he ran away. If I had to do it over again, I would still smack him. It was the right thing to do, even knowing that that one consequence will be alienation for a season. I approve the smacking from one angle, and at the same time I regret the smacking from another. And he says, if an infinite mind can have emotions like this, how much more can it, sorry, if a finite mind can have emotions like this, how much more can an infinite mind have? When God says that he regrets making the world, it doesn't mean he has changed his mind on making it. He has no variance, the scriptures say. He's not like shifting shadows. When God created the world, he uh, what we see when God created the world was that he would have a people for himself. That doesn't mean that when they rebel against him, he doesn't grieve and feel pain. He still will have a people for himself. And the very evidence of this is the last verse of this chapter that says, and Noah found favour in the eyes of God. If, if God was to fully, if God was to regret like we regret or repent like we repent, repent things to turn from, to change your direction, that would mean God would have to wipe out the whole world and not just some of them. He wouldn't have kept Noah. So what we see here is this infinite complex mind of God as he grieves the sin of this world and the pain of this world yet knows that this is the right decision. To help us, this phrase is used one other time, 1 Samuel 15, 11, after King Saul was appointed king and then has rebelled against God, and it says, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king. 
For he has turned, uh, he has turned back from, follow, from following me and has performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried. Uh, yeah, and Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. See, if we just read that, we would feel like God has regretted and wished He never made King Saul king. But verse twenty-nine gives us a helpful insight and explains it, and says, "And also the glory of Israel, the God of Israel, will not lie or have regret, for He is not a man that He should not that He should have regret." So we've got this complex picture of God's emotions that remember that his regret is not like our regret. His sorry is not like our sorry. When we do wrong, we want to change our actions. When we repent, we should turn away from those actions. God's plan is being fulfilled, and this is part of his plan. He's grieving what is not in him, which is sin. He's grieving evilness. If we go back to the verse in our passage... It says, and the Lord regretted that he had made the earth, verse 6, that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. The end it grieved him to his heart clarifies what the regret means for us. He's feeling pain. He's feeling the weight of the not being like him. He's feeling the weight of a child leaving home because they have rebelled in disobedience. He does not want to change his plan. And we clearly see that stated in that this very next verse, as he condemns the world to a judgment by flood, that he will destroy everything, that is including the creation that he put under man's under dominion, even the animals, yet then has a moment where he shows mercy to continue his purpose of having a people for himself. In verse 8, but Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. And this reminds me so much of Ephesians 2, where it tells us that you were once dead in your transgressions and your trespasses. And then in verse 4, it says, but God, who is rich in mercy. This picture here is depravity, 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 judgment upon that depravity, but God. Not but men, not but you, not but your righteousness, but God who is rich in mercy chooses to continue with his purpose, his purpose of having a people for himself, and he saved Noah and his family. We go on next week to look at the flood or the start of the flood, that God will send his judgment across the earth and wipe out all the Nephilim and wipe out all the depravity but preserve a people for himself, a remnant who will worship him forever and ever. And he continues to preserve, preserve them, even in their rebellion. Yet Noah doesn't just point. Noah is not there just for Noah's sake. Noah is there to point us to Jesus. And the boat, the ark, is to point us to the salvation we have in Jesus. And we cannot leave this passage without speaking of the hope we have in Christ. Because the hope we have in Christ is that the spiritual, the supernatural becomes physical. This spiritual world that we find hard to grasp, the idea of sons of God possessing men and sleeping with women and creating powerful men of demonic power should encourage us because we are by nature supernatural because God has given us new life in Christ. 
And without that new life, we too would continue in our depravity and continue in our rebellion. Yes, there are spiritual dark things, but the light of Christ is greater than the darkness. And the light drives away the darkness. And the spirits of evil Jesus drove out and sent away. Not one demon could stand before Christ and say, I'm standing my ground in this body. Christ sent them into the abyss. When Christ went to the cross, he defeated sin, Satan, and death and gave us the means of having his Holy Spirit create a new life in us to make us supernaturally born again. This passage, yes, is weird for us in Western civilization, particularly in Australia, but it gives us hope that we are a spiritual new creation, without which we would float away, we would float away in the wrath of God, just like the rest of mankind in, in, in the flood. But we've been spared by Christ as Christ absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf and gave us a new life in him. New heart, holiness, righteousness are what mark us and the evil, evilness of this world, the evilness of the spiritual world cannot stand against Christ, cannot prevail in our lives anymore. We have no reason to fear. The only one we should fear is God who can destroy both body and soul. Father, this is a heavy word and it pushes heavily against our pride and our pride wants to say it's not true. I'm not like that or I was not like that, but Lord, would we be humble? Our depravity is real. Our idolatry is real. We turn from you over and over again. And if it weren't for your spirit in us and the righteousness of Christ that we have now claimed to you, we would turn from you today forevermore. But Lord, you have promised and sealed us with the Holy Spirit that we will enter into your glory. And that, Lord, is the greatest news that we can have. Let us not fear the spiritual darkness. Let us not fear our sin, knowing that Christ has conquered them both. And let us not fear death, knowing that Christ has had victory over all. Satan cannot prevail against him. He has been crushed, bruised, and will soon be crushed under the feet of the church, as it says in Romans 16. We will have victory because of Christ and Christ only. Let us take hope. Let us rejoice in Christ and march on in the victory of Christ without fear of man or spirit. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.